This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton is a third-generation Washingtonian who has been witness to the biggest turning points for the capital city's long struggle for civil and political rights. In the course of her lifetime, she's also seen the city's wide demographic shifts, from majority white to majority black to no majority. From a population of more than 800,000 in 1950 to 570,000 five decades later, and then the steady growth of the last two decades that's inched the city back above 700,000 and also made it a cultural destination. One thing has been constant, though. Citizens of the District of Columbia federal taxpaying citizens have been denied full voting representation. Taxation without representation. Norton has made making her congressional colleagues and the nation aware of this fact part of her life's work. Whether that's through impassioned floor speeches. The radical Republican abolitionists gave us the vote, which was then taken from us and gave us home rule. I will not yield, sir. The District of Columbia has spent 206 years yielding to people who would deny them the vote. I yield you no ground. Or even by appearing on Stephen Colbert's Colbert Rape Horror Show on Comedy Central before he made the leap to CBS to take over The Late Show. Were you born in the district? Born right here. So you can never be president. Because you have to be born in the United States. This is one, two, civics lesson number three. We are a part does of... That, does that mean you have to vote? It does. You should go vote. Oh, that's right. You, you can stay. As a federal district and not a state, the franchise of D.C. citizens has been denied. During the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s, during passage of the Voting Rights Act, as Washington became a mecca of black life in America, Chocolate City... D.C. was nevertheless always denied statehood, denied full political rights. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up Oh, what's happening, C.C.? They still call it the White House, but that's a temporary condition, too. Can you dig it, C.C.? I would first like to congratulate all of you on the orderly dignified manner in which you executed the march from the Washington Memorial. You have already told the world what we are here for and shown them by your courage, determination, and your order that we mean business. The racial overtones can't be missed. While blacks have wielded influence in the House, 
the Senate has had only 10 black senators, ever, and three of them are serving now. Tim Scott of South Carolina, Cory Booker of New Jersey, and Kamala Harris of California. And now a perfect storm has pushed D.C. sovereignty to the fore. This week, the House will vote on a bill granting Washington full statehood. That's the first time that will happen in almost 30 years. And the bill's sponsor, Eleanor Holmes Norton, is here to talk with us about that, about Black Lives Matter, and about other issues affecting D.C.'s politics and its sovereignty on this episode of Political Theater. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, thank you for joining Political Theater. Um, Your D.C. statehood bill is on the House floor this week. Uh, It's scheduled for a vote on Friday. Uh, The last time your your D.C. statehood bill was on the floor of the House was 1993. Did you you think you would have to wait this long (laughs) for that to happen again? I certainly didn't. That uh, bill was on the floor in my very first term. So why has it taken... Uh, so long, it has taken so long because for most of my terms in the Congress, I had been in the minority. We're in the majority now. We're going to make full use of it. And also, I mean, you you you've also revisited the issue, but you you know, using it like in more the voting representation. You know, you you starting in the '90s when you're in the minority, uh, and then in the 2000s, you you know, you were able to to partner with some Republicans like Tom Davis, and then later on Daryl Issa on on DC sovereignty issues, voting representation, and so forth. Uh, so it's not like the issue ever ever went away. Uh, but it but it seems like so much has happened in the last couple of months that has pushed this into uh, into this moment. Um, certainly, the pandemic uh, has brought up issues of of DC being shortchanged because it didn't get the same uh, allocation as a state, and then also the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I mean, this brought up a lot of issues of DC sovereignty with the president uh, and how he handled the protests, how he handled the National Guard. Uh, do, do you, did you ever imagine that so many of these issues with civil rights and with public health and with DC sovereignty would ever converge at the same time? This confluence of issues, I think, heightens our ability to get this bill passed not only in the House, but in the Senate, which is a much harder House to get a bill passed. But it should be noted that uh, it looks as though the Democrats are going to take control of the Senate if the figures say the way they are now, and perhaps even the presidency. That's why the president is so nervous that he's having uh, vote, uh, that he's ha- having events despite the, the virus. And it also seems like the you know that you were able to pick up some support from uh, your Republican colleagues. Uh, people like Davis and, and Issa in the past because they didn't have to worry about trying to sell two Democratic senators <laughs> in, the, in the Senate. They, they, it was just about one vote in the House. Uh, do you think that you'll be able to pick up some, some sort of Republican support like on, on this? Well, you mentioned something very important, that I was able to get Republican support for a different bill, a vote in the House. And Utah is the state with whom we were paired. They had missed getting a vote they thought they were entitled to. And in fact, we actually got that bill passed in the House and the Senate, and we would at least have a vote in the House today, except that Republicans tried to attach, Republicans here in the House tried to attach a bill to it that would have eliminated all of the district's gun rights. And of course, a big city can't afford that. We lost that right. Uh, to have a vote in the House. And so we 
said, from here on in, we'll go for the full enchilada uh, statehood. Your roots in D.C. go back very deep. Um, you know, you're a Dunbar High graduate. You know, you've taught at Georgetown for years. You were, uh, you know, you headed the EEOC under Jimmy Carter during his administration. Um, you know, D.C. has seen different um different times where they get, uh, you know, a, a little bit more sovereignty. In the 60s, it was getting a presidential, a, a vote in the presidency in the election, and then vo- voting for school boards later on in, in the late 60s. And then in 71, you know, the, the, the delegate, and then home rule in 74. I mean, that shows some progress, but it does seem like we're stalled. You know, it brings up the larger question of whether we've st- stalled as a country on on civil rights. I mean, where do you see this? I mean, you're, this is, you know, you work for the ACLU. I mean, you have, uh, you know, as much experience in, in this, in this arena as anybody else. Have we made progress as a country, uh, in, in compared to the time frame we're looking at in the last 50, 60 years? Well, what's been so, uh, frustrating, I think, to D.C. residents is the nature of the progress. Incremental progress, it tends to be how you make progress in the United States of America. We don't go for the full thing very easily on anything, and certainly not on the District of Columbia. People have to educate themselves on, well, you know, District of Columbia, well, they like the rest of us, aren't they? Have to start from there. Most Americans don't even know that we don't have the same rights that they have, uh, because we are one jurisdiction among thousands, it becomes uh, very difficult to uh, retrain uh, people every session of Congress about what we're doing, particularly when they see me on the House floor doing what everybody else does. So that doesn't say that I don't have the rights, the same rights as everybody else. They don't miss us in the Senate because the Senate, uh, they don't see lots of senators on, on the floor. <laughs> so the fact is that we do have to relitigate this matter. Uh, and had to do so uh, ever since 1801, <laughs> when the District of Columbia became the capital of the United States, and uh, protested even then that uh, the residents did not have the same rights as other residents of our country. We are a, a particularly polarized moment in our history. Why are we not seeing somebody like, you know, the, the person who would, would replace somebody like Tom Davis uh, in working with you on these rights? Because there, ha- there has to be some, uh, somebody on the other side of the aisle who it just sort of sticks in their craw that, like, you know, the, there are 700,000 plus people who, don't, who pay taxes and don't have a vote in, in, uh, in, in Congress. I think you've said it. It's because uh, this is one of those really polarized moments in American history, perhaps more polarized than we've been at any time since the Civil War. Uh, but the country usually understands it has to come together. Uh, we may seem see even some coming together on the bill that's going to be on the floor next week uh, on, uh, on uh, policing because of seeing in real time the murder of an African-American, George Floyd. Uh, that is the kind of moment it takes in, in a country as vast as this uh, to, to bring together people. No peace! No peace! No peace! And hopefully it'll help us, even with statehood for the District of Columbia. 
you know, we, we spoke with uh, Majority Whip uh, Jim Clyburn, and your colleague, uh, your longtime colleague in the House uh, last week uh, about what is what is it that's different now? Because it does feel different. Um, you know, the, the and you know, we've seen we've seen black men killed, you know, using cell phone cameras and so forth before. We've seen, you know, like concern about the issue. Uh, but it does feel different. What do you think is different about this moment in history in in terms of our, you know, DC sovereignty, in terms of like racial justice and Black Lives Matter? Because it does feel a lot like there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more momentum. I think that real time picture of a man being killed uh, probably uh, may it changed everything in our country. Now, what are we going to do with it? Is the question. Uh, it certainly changed what changed. People are still in the streets, uh, but it's going to be up to those of us in the Congress to make sure something comes of it. And one of the things I'm trying to make come of it is statehood for the District of Columbia. What kind of conversations have you had with your your colleagues in the Senate about where this goes next? We've got huge allies in the Senate, and Mitch McConnell uh, is certainly not one of them. Uh, no, no other Republican senators, but watch out, Senate. Polls now show that uh, Democrats have more than a good chance to take control of the Senate. Uh, so we will be well on our way uh, if that happens. Uh, this president could lose. His numbers are so uh, in the, the bucket that he risks... Uh, Changing, taking a whole stadium into the virus last night uh, in order to have a, an event. So the Republicans, according to the polls in the Senate and in the presidency, are in trouble. That turns out to be good news for the District of Columbia and for the Democrats in both the House and the Senate. Do you think that there's uh, any any worry about some overconfidence? Overconfidence by whom? About the election, uh, about about where Trump stands and 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 so forth, because you know the I think that a lot of people you know basically counted Trump out from the get go in in twenty sixteen. Is there a danger of overconfidence there, uh, particularly if you know that some parts of the coalition that would need to elect Joe Biden are the targets of voting su- voter suppression or you know like the some of the tactics that that the that the Trump campaign is going to try to employ. If, if you're saying is there any danger about overconfidence, I think we learned our lesson when Hillary Clinton was not elected president of the United States. And to show you evidence that there's no overconfidence, look at what people have been willing to do uh, in light of this virus in order to vote at all. We've seen people standing in line to vote my own son here in the District of Columbia, where you know the vote is rather much uh, uh, in before it is counted, stood five hours, and it wasn't because he was my my son. It was because people in the district want to vote against this president. So I think the sacrifices we show people already making are very important uh, in answering your question about whether will go the way of, of Hillary Clinton, which, as you know, won the popular vote, but did not win in, uh, did not win in the Electoral College. And everybody is watching those states, uh, and Joe Biden is ahead in those states, those very swing states now. He's got to stay ahead, and by staying at home, he's been staying ahead. 
some of your colleagues have also been mentioned as uh, potential vice presidential, you know, nominees, candidates, Val Demings and one of the impeachment managers over in the Senate, Kamala Harris. Uh, what, what do you, uh, what do you, what sort of advice would you have for, for some of those uh, folks who are on the, on the list? Well, I don't have a favorite except that I'd love to see it happen. And, and I think it has a very good chance of happening. Somebody's perhaps someone of color or at least a woman. Uh, he says he's looking for a woman. And, and I think he understands the way the wind is blowing in the country. Congressman, thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk about your, your bill and some of these issues. Uh, thank you for, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode of Political Theater. For more podcasts like this one, or to check out our show notes for further reading about some of the topics Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton and I discussed, check out our landing page on rollcall.com slash podcasts. As always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is owned by Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.